I'm Thanasi Kambanis. Welcome to Order From Ashes, the Century Foundation's international affairs podcast. Today, I'm talking with Anad Mansour and Haider al-Shakari from Chatham House about their research into conflict economies and conflict supply chains in territories formerly held by ISIS, uh, some of the remote border regions of Iraq, and their kind of path-breaking look at how these areas work. Uh, and we're going to get into that in a second. Uh, welcome to the podcast, uh, Renad and Haider. Thanks. Thanks for having us. So before we get into this uh, kind of Wild West story you you two have, have documented of uh, smuggling across the Iraqi border, uh, start by telling us what what was the research question in the project that led you to be looking at this type of uh, conflict supply chain or conflict economy in the first place? Well, in the geography that we were looking at, you know, parts of Iraq uh, and Syria, um, ISIS has lost its territorial control for several years. Um, and you don't have that conflict that you had, um, you know, before. But we wanted to know what does it look like there now? Um, is it completely stabilized? Are people no longer living in, in, in conflict because ISIS is gone? Um, or what is the reality? Um, and the way we wanted to do that was to look at some of these supply chains, these conflict economies that connect, you know, the borders of, of, of Iraq and Syria and Jordan and these areas that ISIS, you know, emerged from uh, because of the, the way it would, they were able to uh, take control of these supply chains. And, and, um, and let, me, I, let, me, let me just stop you to, to elaborate on that a little bit, because typically uh, the things we read and see look at look at these kinds of questions through a security lens, right? Places where ISIS right. rose and took control yeah. and then receded. Uh, we see studies of militias or, or how many men have weapons or, you know, the sort of infrastructures of of violence. So why, why explain this different approach you're taking? Well, because, you know, the violence, you know, has been done and it's clear. The ideology has been done and it's clear. But what really distinguished ISIS beyond those two uh, was how wealthy it was able to become, right? It became the world's, you know, it was known as the world's richest terrorist, or, you know, Salafi Jihadist terrorist organization uh, at its peak, um, making millions and millions each month. And that really helped it accelerate to, to, to take over a third of Iraq and so much of Syria. Um, and so understanding these supply chains, which existed before and after ISIS, um, really gives us a glimpse into both ISIS, but also conflict in that area. So when, and when you say supply chains, what I hear is how people make money, basically trade, finance, uh, smuggling, uh, the, you know, the ways, the way people acquire goods, the way people make money, uh, and, what I hear you saying is that ISIS was uniquely successful at finding ways to make money uh, when it took territorial control of places. And so you want to find out what happened to all those uh, economic uh, uh, sort of web, that, that economic web after the fall of ISIS in 2018. I mean, these are historic trading routes uh, that go way beyond, you know, behind, you know, back, way back to even before these countries existed. Um, and and there was a moment where ISIS work was, you know, was controlling it. But removing ISIS doesn't mean these routes and this trade uh, and 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 the pursuit of profit by different armed groups, political actors, uh, and 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 others 
has stopped, right? And so we wanted to know in these areas, you know, the supply of everything from, you know, from, from illicit narcotics, but also to like licit goods like agriculture, tomatoes, uh, sheep, animals, food. Um, who is profiting from that right now? And what does that tell us about, you know, the sta- stability of, of, of that region? Okay, so how, and maybe Haider, you want to address this, how did you go about uh, looking for a case study or for for a story to tell that helps us uh, shed light on this question of how the rise and fall of ISIS has affected uh, the the ways in which people live and acquire goods and and, uh, make money? Uh, so basically, we went uh, to Ambar and we started talking with people to see how did this supply chain affected them, uh, what are they doing right now, uh, what are the harms that are being uh, uh, being infected upon them uh, because of these supply chains. And what we found out that uh, because of the changing in the supply chain and because of you know restricting certain borders, opening other borders, changing in the actors and in the people who are uh, managing and controlling things, uh, there are many harms that were inflicted on people residing in different parts, especially in, uh, in border areas uh, that are bordering Syria and Jordan. And I assume this is hard work to do because Anbar province, uh, for those of our listeners who aren't deeply familiar with Iraq's geography, is the vast uh, uh, desert province that stretches from the western edge of Baghdad all the way to the borders with Saudi Arabia, Jordan, and Syria in the west. Um, It's an enormous expanse. Uh, There's a couple of key cities along the way, and a lot of it is is, uh, hard to control, open, rolling rolling desert lands. Uh, And as Renad mentioned a few minutes ago, this is also an area of the world that has uh, millennial millennial, uh, trading routes, uh, overland trading routes that have been around since, uh, I, I think, maybe before recorded history, certainly as long as we've had uh, recorded history. So this is a a really rich backdrop against which to do some uh, research in uh, uh, the relatively short, uh, you know, five or 10 year historical period of ISIS and uh, uh, post-ISIS smuggling and and, and trading. Uh, So let's, let's go into the uh, into the actual story you uncovered, which which is kind of it's kind of a rollicking narrative, the the rise and fall of uh, of of a couple of competing uh, uh, border towns and smuggling points. Um, do you want to just sort of lay uh, you know set the scene for us with with what you know what was what's the story you uncovered about what happened in these uh, in these border border towns and border areas? So in our research, we uh, examined two border towns. Uh, one is Rutba, which is a district in Ambar uh, that are, that's bordering uh, Syria, Jordan, and Saudi Arabia. Uh, we also looked at Al-Qa'im, where uh, the, there is a, a border town and a border crossing with, with Syria. And what we saw that despite Rutba being a vast, big area, having the three border crossings with three different countries, there are many restrictions that were there. Um, because of the security situation, because of ISIS, despite the fact that you know ISIS have left six, seven years ago. Uh, while Al-Qa'im 
has been having a thriving uh, trade and a supply chain that is very open across the official border crossing, but also across many unofficial border crossings that uh, uh, some groups have opened throughout throughout the years uh, while they control these areas. So so let's let's tell the story in chronological order before we get into the uh, the sort of meta analysis. So what happened uh, what happened to trade and and movement at Rotba uh, during the period of ISIS and um, and after ISIS's defeat? So maybe briefly I can just uh, sketch that out. So during ISIS this you know ISIS controlled this territory. Um, uh, the border across from Iraq and Syria, obviously, but also many much of this area in Ambar. Um, when ISIS is territorially defeated, um, the Iraqi government... Uh, Wait, we're not. And, during, and dur- during this time that ISIS was in control, was the border sealed? Were goods able or in people able to cross at those at those spots? This was the Islamic State between Iraq and Syria. Okay, between Iraq and Syria, Islamic State was on both sides, but on the Jordanian and Saudi side. Well, this is the story. So, okay. so, so the Jordanians, Sorry. you know, and and this was the border crossing before ISIS between Iraq and Jordan. Uh, these networks were, were were created during the 1990s, even with Saddam Hussein looking to uh, skirt sanctions. So, what happens when ISIS emerges is much of the activity moves towards Iraq and Syria, which is the Islamic State. Uh, and and at the same time, Jordan closes and 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 increases restrictions on the Iraq uh, Jordan border, right? So once ISIS is defeated, you know, um, those groups that defeated ISIS, working with the Iraqi government, uh, take over these routes um, across Iraq and Syria. So what we're talking about here is a decision to close one border point, that is the border between Iraq and Jordan, and also a reality of an emerging border point that is between Iraq and Syria that sees the supply chain move, you know, move from Iraq Jordan towards Iraq and Syria in the context of a post-ISIS uh, region. And in order to get like a, a sort of feel for what that means, so I mean, my you know, my understanding uh, from you know all the time I've spent in Iraq is that a, a huge amount of basic goods uh, come to Iraq overland from Jordan, right? You know, from medicine and food to all kinds of consumer goods. Uh, uh, this know. was the crossing for many, many years. So so up, and, and I mean, the, you know, during some of the most violent parts of the uh, sectarian civil war, when Anbar was incredibly dangerous in the, in the 2000s, there was still a huge amount of, of car and truck traffic overland through this border point. So if you're telling me that completely got shut off uh, uh, during the the period when ISIS was in, in control of Anbar province, um, and then you're telling me that once ISIS was defeated, uh, the different groups in control of that physical area maintained, like basically kept it limited, so they didn't reopen it fully 24 hours a day. Lines of trucks, like we used to have historically, but they reopened it as a very securitized and heavily monitored area in which the first priority is preventing the return of ISIS rather than the free flow of goods and people across the border. Um, What does that do to the kinds of, of, uh, I mean, uh, you're going to tell me in a minute about the shift 
to Kayim. But the first thing I want to know is, did did Iraqis just have to go without all the 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 licit regular goods that they had depended on from the sanctions period onward through this crossing? So basically, the supply chain uh, kind of shifted. So uh, when we talk to the people from Rutba, from Trebil, that borderland between Iraq and Jordan, they said that you know things are not passing through Jordan anymore. Before, thousands of trucks used to pass daily, and now maybe a hundred or even less pass a day because of you know they open four or five hours a day those uh, those borders, and they they have very strict restrictions on on these uh, on these points. So people are preferring to go through uh, Basra to the ports, through Al Qaim, through Syria, uh, or you know they import things through through Iran, through Iraq's uh, eastern borders, uh, and that's why people have had restrictions on on uh, on Rutba, where uh, uh, licit goods have have uh, made it less and less in these areas, and uh, people in that area. Uh, have stopped working basically because you know uh, they used to rely on that truth. Trucks used to pass, goods used to pass, and they used to uh, gain their livelihoods from this uh, uh, from these trucks and this route. So maybe to, just to if I can add to that. Um, so what we're talking about here is a restricted sort of path and a restricted route, which means that medical supplies, food daily essentials are no longer being uh you know are, are no longer coming to many of these peoples who live on that route right these are people that used to live on a huge prosperous trading route and they've been shut off uh we did focus groups with the residents in these communities to really understand uh what they're going through and you know our, some of the some of the things that we heard were were was just tragic you have women who don't have access to hospitals. You have women who said, you know, going through being pregnant and, and, and delivering a baby, sometimes by the time the ambulance comes or by the time you try and get to a hospital, they've already delivered the, pa- the, the baby. You have, you have children who aren't getting the medicine they need on time. All of this in the name of restricting a border to make this area, you know, it's more secure. And the focus groups and what people from these areas were saying is that their lives have become dire because of this. And so, you know, if we kind of zoom out and look at the story of Iraq and the story of Ambar, it's when this happens and where this this escalates that conflict reemerges. Okay, we'll be right back after a short break. I'm Thanasi Kambanis. You're listening to Order from Ashes, Century International's podcast, and we're talking to Renad Mansour and Haider al-Shakari from Chatham House about their research into illicit uh, conflict uh, supply chain, not illicit, uh, but just conflict supply chains uh, in Iraq. We'll be right back. Today's world is changing faster than ever. Old rules don't apply, and the new rules haven't been written. At least not yet. I'm Rohan Advani, and I produce the Order from Ashes podcast at the Century Foundation, a leading progressive think tank that promotes peace, cooperation, and equality at home and abroad. On Order from Ashes, we try to make sense of a new international system in which America no longer dictates the global order. Join us as we talk to activists and analysts on the front lines of the most pressing issues in international policy.
Welcome back. I'm Thanasi Kambanis. I'm talking with Haider El-Shakiri and Renad Mansour from Chatham House about their research into conflict supply chains in Iraq. Uh, it's great to have you two on the podcast. And right before the break, Renad, you were talking about the uh, sort of tragic human impact of what happens when, for security reasons, a, a crucial border transshipment point is shut down or, or limited. Uh, and you were starting to, to sort of weave, weave a picture of the ripples of, of human impact. And the last thing you said, and this is what I want you to pick up, is uh, you said that, that in this, as I heard it, in this effort to uh, police and secure this uh, sensitive trade area, uh, a sort of, you know, in, in a sense, a, a heavy, a heavily securitized approach to this border area can ultimately not only make people suffer, but create new vectors of conflict. Uh, if I understood you correctly, ex explain explain how that works, the, how this effort to uh, button things down and make things safer can uh, paradoxically create new uh, new avenues for, for violent armed conflict. Uh, so these uh, armed groups and, and, and politicians and businessmen, these networks who were meant to be the target of closing this border have shifted to another border point, you know, kilometers away. Uh, so they're still profiting and the trade continues. But what's missing from the story is the implications on people who are now living in this sort of closed, isolated, excluded uh, area. And as, as I said, in, in, in the last 20 years of Iraq, it's when this type of exclusion, when people don't have their basic needs met, when, when life becomes so difficult that it becomes unbearable, that kind of exclusion is conflict. And so this is why we're talking about supply chains and looking at supply chains to understand how harm and, and, and conflict could potentially escalate. If you talk about Ambar, Ambar has historically for the last 20 years been the sort of the region where terrorism and Salafi jihadist groups have, have, have long had uh, a presence, right? Now, since ISIS, since the defeat of ISIS, Ambar has been celebrated as a success story. If you look at the big place, the big cities of Anbar, the ones that we became familiar with, with being dangerous, like Fallujah, like Ramadi, that's right. There has been attention paid on these cities to make sure that they are re rebuilding and reconstruction so that ISIS never comes back. But you zoom, you zoom into the border points and you zoom into some of these towns and cities along the border that we're talking about with Jordan that have been shut off and you begin to hear that the, the, the dire sort of exclusion that, that is causing communities uh, to suffer. Is it driving any kind of resurgence of armed activity or militant activity or, or even you know, recruitment to Takfiri groups like ISIS itself or, or its successors? I mean, what we're seeing, and, and, and Haider uh, sort of has, has been looking into this, but what we're seeing is actually uh, the securitization of the border has led to actually a pr proliferation of, of illicit armed groups, uh, more criminality at the moment than, than, than sort of, you know, ISIS type. Um, but you're having the trade of Captagon and, and, and all sorts of illicit uh, goods coming in and out, and that's bringing their own sets of, of, of criminal networks uh, in those areas right now. So this, so 
you, you've done this work, I, I think, uh, uh, as as part of a of a of a grant from from the UK government um, that's interested in understanding how how these illicit economies work, um, and it's it seems like you're it seems like you're arguing that closing the official border or or limiting the official border is uh, essentially making things worse in the uh, uh, like black market and illicit crossings uh, further afield. Is that is that right? Yes, exactly. And this is what has been happening in, uh, in Rutba, but also in Qa'im, where we also looked at uh, the, the border there and how, you know, the the opening of the border uh, increasingly in Al-Qa'im has caused the militarization of the area because more of the armed groups uh, have started moving there. Uh, more of these uh, armed groups have started taking land, uh, making them their uh, uh, their headquarters and starting training, starting, uh, uh, you know, uh, storing weapons and ammunition. Uh, and, you know, we've seen recently some of these uh, depots have exploded in residential areas. We've seen both bombardment by the U.S. on these areas. We've seen people not being able to go back to their uh, farms and agricultural lands in Al-Qa'im, where the Euphrates come. Uh, and this this has affected the, the residents of these areas. And we've also been seeing an increased uh, illicit drugs coming into, into Al-Qa'im and throughout uh, the rest of Iraq and to other countries. I want to slow you down and get you to unpack this explanation because I, I find it you know, confusing and potentially not persuasive, uh, 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 unless you can give me some, some better, some better like granular detail that makes this make more sense to me because, uh, you know, these militias for their own reasons want to be present in these areas. These are Shia militias that do not have a local constituency. They want to be here for both security and self-enrichment reasons. That would be the case whether or not official border crossings are open. Um, and although it's interesting to talk about weapons and, and drug trafficking, those are illicit goods that are always trafficked at unofficial points. Uh, so the sort of nugget of an argument that says this uh, change in the official uh, uh, official organization of, of of the border is causing these unintended consequences would have for me would have to rest with with some kind of description of of a shift in what happens to the trading of legal goods food vegetables medicine uh, now that there's this limit in the official crossing so can you uh, I mean have you found that that kind of trade has shifted? from taking place in the official border uh, crossing to being run by uh, by distressing militias who are using the unofficial uh, uh, crossing point at Qaim, uh to, to, to do that trade? Yes, for sure. I mean, uh, uh, once the restrictions on Rutba and, you know, Tribil uh, started and uh, uh, merchants and businessmen found that, you know, they can't access uh, licit goods easy, easily, uh, whether it's vegetables, whether it's uh, supplies, whether it's whatever, uh, they started going other places. And one of these places is through Al-Qa'ib, but also through Basra, through uh, the, the eastern borders and, uh, and even through Turkey. Uh, so uh, the the illicit goods kept on coming into Iraq, but through those groups themselves. So, so those groups are controlling also the illicit trade. Tell tell us why this is a problem. 
I mean, I, you know, I have my own uh, suspicions and, and ideas about this, but you all have done a lot of really good, thorough work, uh, granular work on, in the field here. Uh, you know, what, like, why is this a problem and what, if anything, can anyone do about it? So the, the argument that we're making uh, isn't that putting sort of, you know, closing a border as such or trying to add security to an area as such is, is, is necessarily a problem. <clears throat> Sorry. The argument that we're making is, is only closing a border without taking to account the wider ripple effects of, of, of the people living and the people who are affected by that decision to close a border uh, will lead to different types of conflict. Now, we're not saying that ISIS is returning anytime soon, but what we're saying is that people, you know, conflict isn't just addressed through militarization or through, you know, this type of securitization. There are communities that need support. And so looking at it as a supply chain, but allows you to look at the wider impact and, and the wider dynamics of people, uh, of, 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 of geographies and of, of goods being traded. So people living in Rutba today are living in conflict even though it might not appear to be that way because the border is, is, is so securitized from the outside. But going there, speaking to residents, allows you to really feel that sense of disillusionment uh, and, 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 and just the inability to live a decent standard of, of, of life. So that's the argument that we're making, not to sort of address, not to just close borders, but to close borders, but have a more coherent policy, right? So this project, you know, it's part of cross-border, it's this cross-border conflict project. It's an evidence policy and trends research program funded by UK aid from the UK government. Its purpose, what we're trying to do is to give policymakers a better understanding of, okay, you see a problem, you want to shut down a border to stop something? What are the potential ripple effects across borders of conflict and, and, and what can be done to better address the bigger sort of picture? Yeah, I see. And I see two very concrete policy implications. I mean, there's more, but two leap to mind right away from this work. One is, uh, you know, the, the, the policymakers are interested in stopping the flow of uh, jihadi fighters across the border. Uh, but instead of stopping that or just stopping that they're stopping this whole other range of things um, uh, that 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 causes a lot of harm to the civilian population that policymakers are supposedly trying to help the other the other thing I see is um, an affirmative policy interest in opening legal commercial border crossings to to travelers and goods uh, because if you don't you end up causing all kinds of harmful ripple effects and and when you know when I hear you talking about you know the, the what happened in Rotuba and Kayim, uh I of course think about uh, you know at a different border but I think about how the border regimen uh, in Northwest Syria between Northwest Syria and Turkey that was again a security decision ended up causing huge amounts of human misery after the earthquake because the uh, this this kind of unreasonably restrictive security regimen uh, made it impossible for humanitarian aid um, and other goods to to, to cross the border. Uh, so I, I, uh, I see a pretty interesting and clear uh, case uh, from what you're making for, for what you're making here. And I wonder uh, uh, what does the Iraqi government 
uh, think about this? Do, do, have they made a case or made an effort to uh, fully reopen the, the Rotba border uh, in order to basically reacquire for the legal uh, pathway all this movement of people and goods that's moved into these illicit militia-controlled uh, uh, ports uh, uh, or border crossings? Yeah, I think that's a good question, and it shows you how, you know, th we're talking about a border, a very small local uh, area, but it's connected to the Iraqi government just as much as it's connected to the Syrian government, and so the supply chain brings in all of these. And if you think about the Iraqi government, um, especially following the, the, the fight against ISIS, Many of, of the groups, many of the politicians and the armed groups that are profiting from this modified supply chain, let's say, which is now going through Al-Qaim instead of Rutba, are also influencing the government. So there is a, you know, the reason for uh, this reality is because Iraq's elite today are profiting in, in, in this way. Uh, many of these groups, you know, share good connections. They have better connections to groups in Syria rather than groups in Jordan. So it makes sense for them to keep this up. Uh, there, you know, there's an economic there's interest, which means there's an interest to, to, to become powerful by doing this. So, and at the same... Sorry. I was going to say, for the corrupt factions, it seems like this setup, this bad setup, it's bad for people, is good for them, right? It, it makes exactly. it easier to steal and, and embezzle from, from trade. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's the point, right? So, so uh, there's a new reality in, in, in post-ISIS Iraq in these areas where uh, Syria and Iraq are now a, a, a prime area for, for, for profit by armed groups that share relations across these borders. Um, at the same time where the relationship with Jordan um, has, is, is a bit more problematic for many of these groups and they don't share the same kinds of connections uh, and would not profit as, as, as much on that uh, side. I remember visiting uh, this border crossing as a journalist in uh, 2005 or 2006. I think it was 2005 in the fall. And I was in Syria. And at the time, there was a big... Uh, there was a big issue about the flow of jihadi volunteers via Syria into Anbar uh, to join Al-Qaeda and other groups fighting the Americans. And so the Syrian government uh, put, on a, put on a sort of demonstration and they invited a bunch of foreign correspondents to see how they were going to seal up this border. Um, and, uh, and the, I mean, it was a Potemkin, uh, initiative and seeing how it worked really for me hit home how impossible it is to control these borders. So they brought us to the sort of bluff overlooking, um, uh, from the Abu Kamal side overlooking Qaim and they were rolling out uh, concertina wire and they had, you know, several hundred meters of concertina wire. And I just, I walked to the end of it. And at the end of it, there was just an open, uh, sort of an open, uh, hilly area. And there were smugglers crossing the border openly right within sight of, of, of the Syrian uh, army on one side and the U.S. Marines on the other. And none of these, uh, none of these security institutions, uh, whether they wanted to or not, could do a thing about it because these, these uh, 
these smugglers had been doing this forever, uh, and they were carrying everything people needed. And and how and and you can't tell the difference between a person who's carrying a farmer's crop uh, uh, versus someone who's maybe a, a a future a future fighter in disguise. And uh, what what I took away from that was that uh, unless I mean unless you have an actually locally governed and legitimate uh, entity in control of that area, you're just, you're and even then you're probably never going to be able to control smuggling across this border. Yeah. Just one thing that, uh, uh, the other day we were talking to an Iraqi official and he mentioned a similar scenario where, uh, he said through the official border crossing, uh, you know, these groups, they bring in illicit and illicit goods through official vehicles that are not being searched, that are not being through customs, because, you know, these are official vehicles. But he said the biggest problem is through the unofficial crossings that are in the dozens across Iraq and Syria, where, you know, they can't even control and there's no way they can control unless, you know, they look deeply into the issue and they look deeply into the aftermath of this. Renaud, you have a closing closing comment? You know, when the Ali Alawi as finance minister uh, a few years ago um, found, he, he sort of went publicly and said that Iraq is losing uh, billions each year um, at these border points, right? And we often think about these border points as being um, illegal as being against, you know, sort of in the shadows. Some people will call it, say black market uh, informality. But what this tale of two border towns it also tells us is how intertwined this trade, although it's not on the formal books of the government, but how intertwined it is with the political elites and their armed groups and their businesses across these countries. Um, and, 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 and that's what makes it even more challenging because it's not black and white. This, this, this is an economy that has sustained, has been sustained for, 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 you know, for many, many years and will continue to be sustained. And so, you know, international policymakers who are looking to support stabilization policies and development, um, you know, should be looking at these border points as a wider supply chain that connects countries across some of these artificial borders that have been drawn to better understand how a tiny border town or a small locality could impact not just that town, but over time, uh, much a, a much larger part of, of, of area and, and, and more people. Yeah, I see this as a really useful mapping exercise in, in effect that says like, okay, if you want to, if you're going to muck around you know, securitizing a border, closing a border, doing other things that might be legitimate uh, ideas of how to prevent the return of ISIS, let's say, or restore governance, you need to know what what you're doing and what effect you're having. And this uh, this story you tell, uh, you know, it has, uh, it, it, it's, it's the real story of how people live, uh, survive, trade, make money, earn livings, uh, and, and end up sometimes engaging in conflict, uh, in, in an area that has a really rich and complicated, uh, bunch of, uh, uh people who have power, uh, overlapping groups that have power in it. Uh, so I, I found this, 
a really interesting conversation, useful, a useful conversation. And I assume uh, you have years to come of, uh, of, of, of additional uh, case studies and uh, stories that you're going to unearth uh, through this uh, work uh, that helps us understand the, the, the ways people live in these conflict areas and what are some of the unintended consequences of uh, international and, and national policies in these areas. Thank you uh, for coming on the podcast. We've been talking with Haider and Shakiri, who is a research associate in the Middle East and North Africa program at Chatham House, and Renad Mansour, who is the director of the Iraq Initiative at Chatham House. They've been doing field work, uh, a lot of field work in Iraq, and specifically today they were talking about their field work in Anbar province, uh, looking at the changing patterns of trade and movement uh, at different border crossings in Western Iraq. Uh, thank you both for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. This is Order from Ashes, Century International's podcast. I'm Thanasi Kambanis. Thanks for joining and listening to us today. Until next time. The Order from Ashes podcast has been brought to you by Century International. Our work builds on more than 100 years of commitment to international peace, security, and governance at the Century Foundation. We are independent, critical, and progressive. For more information about Century International's work, please visit tcf.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. We depend on audience feedback to reach new listeners. If you like what you hear, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts.